welcome back to Reflect Forward. I'm your host, Carrie Siggins, and I'm so glad you're here today. I am so happy to be bringing my guest today, Adam Bryant. Uh, he and his co-author, Kevin Scharr, wrote uh, The CEO Test. If you follow me on LinkedIn, you saw me post a picture on this going, oh my God, am I going to pass the CEO test or am I going to fail? And then after I read this phenomenal book, I wrote a book review on it because I was so impressed. In the book, uh, he and his co-author, Kevin, talk about what it takes to be an effective leader and the challenges that leaders face and, and the enormity of the problems that we have to solve, the loneliness, the weight of the responsibility, the second guessing, the criticism, the 24-7, the pressure is just so much. And I agree. And the CEOs who do it well make it, but the average CEO tenure is less than five years. So I reached out to him and uh, and met with him and talked about all of his ideas on leadership and, and we totally hit it off. So just a little bit more about him. He's the managing director for the Exco Group, which is a leadership development and mentoring firm where he's worked with hundreds of CEOs. In fact, they ex coach exclusively C-suite level executives. Prior to that, he was a journalist for 30 years, including at the New York Times, where he created and authored the massively successful Corner Office column in which he interviewed CEOs about their jobs. He actually never talked to them about their companies, just about leadership and how they viewed their jobs. Uh, and he talks about that in the interview. He's the author of Quick and Nimble and the Corner Office, which are bestsellers. He's also a teacher, speaker, and frequent contributor on CNBC. He's awesome. We had such a fun conversation. I know you're going to love it. I highly recommend that you read this book, The CEO Test. It's not just for CEOs. It's for anyone who is looking to be a exceptional and transformational leader. Uh, these seven tests that, uh, that highly capable, highly competent, highly effective leaders must pass are good for everyone. So hang tight and I'll be right back with Adam. All right. I'm back, everyone, and so excited for you to meet Adam Bryant. As you know, I love his book, and uh, and I've told many of you to go buy it because we all need to take a CEO test. So, uh, Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I always look forward to my conversations with you. Thank you. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, so what inspired you to write this book? Give us the details. Sure. I, I think it was captured in the subtitle of the book, which is Master the Challenges That Make or Break All Leaders. And, and I think at least the way I write books is like, I start with a question, not I, not that I wake up with an idea. And there are thousands of leadership books out there. We need to acknowledge that. And you know, my co-author and I, Kevin, share, we want to be very clear up front about how we might be adding to the conversation. But just putting this lens on the question of leadership is why do people succeed or fail in their roles? Like, what are those great points? And then, you know, once you ask that question, be easy to fill a whiteboard with 300 things, right? Um, but then the challenge becomes the winnowing process. And so how do we, could we get it down to say seven tests, those core tests that really help explain why people succeed in their fail, succeed or fail in their roles? And not just that, but also provide a bit of a playbook on how to do it uh, well and, and explain it away with that sort of, you know, that sweet spot of specificity uh, of the playbook, but not sort of company or industry specific. Um, so that, that was our goal. Um, and 
a couple of the other guiding principles were, um, we kind of fixed on this idea of ROI in terms of leadership, because again, if anybody wants to become a better leader, there are 300 things you could focus on to become a better leader. But this idea of like our, our bet, our argument is that if you focus on these seven things, you will see a greater ROI return on investment of your time and energy, and you'll see greater impact on becoming an effective leader. So that was our goal. Again, I'll let the readers judge whether we succeeded or not. Well, I think you did. Um, your book inspired me to uh, to do several, take several actions, which I appreciated. And I also felt like a little bit validated, like, okay, good, I'm doing a lot of these things. But I've been in my role as CEO for 12 years. And, and as you state, you know, in the beginning of the book, a lot of most CEOs don't make it for that first five years. And, and that is uh, a tremendous cost to productivity, business, companies, the employees who are in that business, uh, in the business. So um, I think it's really important to, to be able to narrow it down. And I think you did a great job. So. I appreciate that. And, and I don't need to tell you, Carrie, but your job is getting harder every day, right? Yeah. I mean, um, just through the pandemic, I, I, I think we're going through just this breathtaking era of change um, for, you know, in terms of leadership, in terms of the nature of work, in terms of the role of companies in society. Um, and uh, and so I, I have deep appreciation and respect for what you do. Oh yeah, 2020 was by far the hardest year of my leadership career. And we've gone through, uh, certainly gone through other crises. There was the you know, 2008, 2009 crises, and then the oil crash in 2014, but there was nothing like this with all the fear around health and families and well-being and, and remote work. And it was just such a dramatic change that that all that other stuff was child's play, just practice for what we had to deal with in 2020. Totally agree. <laughs> so tell me, um, you know, we wrote the book during during the pandemic, and um, and now that you know we're in year two of this, do you think have has any of your views on these leadership challenges changed? Like you said, my job is getting harder. Like, what do you see the biggest issues are, and how leaders are going to have to change for the future? Yeah, a couple of things come to mind. I, I, it's not, to me, it's not so much changing altogether, but just sort of doubling down on the importance of them. And and we started the book with a chapter around strategy and, and, and creating real clarity around the strategy because I, you know, sort of the longer I'm in the sort of consulting chapter of my career, the more I appreciate the degree to which strategy is the cornerstone of the foundation that in many ways drives everything. And through the pandemic, I think that becomes even more important as everybody's working remotely, as we're trying to navigate all this uncertainty for a leader to be able to articulate, like, this is where we're going. This is how we're going to get there. And there's no crystal ball. We're not sure we're going to get there, but we need a direction. We need everybody to commit to this hundred percent. Um, even though we can only be 70% sure it's right, but to have that clarity and I think that's just become so much more important as everybody is working remotely. So, um, you know, I, I think that's point one. The other thing is we do have a chapter around um, about listening, which is not the kind of course you typically see in business schools. But uh, I think the skill of listening, I always call it the sort of underrated superpower of great leaders. But I, I think we can all agree that that has become more important. Um, through this pandemic, we're hearing a lot about leaders needing to be more authentic, to be more human, to have more compassion, 
just the simple question of how are you becomes more meaningful rather than just how you doing. Um, and, and so really listening, but also knowing when to, you know, being compassionate, but also being able to navigate those contradictions, those paradoxes of leadership that we talk about, you know, that there's a time for listening, there's a time for compassion, but there's also a time for saying, you know, I, I've heard you, but we're going to go left. We're not going to go right. And we need everybody to, you know, crash this project because we've got a very tight deadline. Yeah, I agree with you about the listening piece. I actually just reposted on LinkedIn today a, a, a Forbes article on why CEOs need to be the chief empathy officer. And I felt like they missed this, this core component of listening because if there's anything that this past year has shown me, it's that I have to take the time to listen. And I call it pulling a thread, right? It's, it's you listen and then you ask the next level of question and the next level of question, well, what did you mean by that? How does that feel? And really being able to pull that thread so that you have a better understanding and so that person truly feels heard. And, uh, and so there's such power in that pulling thread, asking questions. But I think a lot of leaders don't want to take the time to go do that because it does take time. Yeah. I, I, I always like to say that, you know, being a bad boss is a great productivity hack, right? Because if you don't, yeah. uh, you know, spend time asking people what they're thinking and what they're feeling, just sort of issue orders, you can save yourself a lot of time. Um, and, uh, and I, I do think a lot of leaders sort of skew more on being kind of relentlessly goal focused rather than being empathetic. But again, everything's a balance point because you can be, I do think you can be too empathetic, right? I mean, as a yeah. manager myself for 14 years, teams of reporters in my journalism career, I think there were times that I skewed too heavily on the empathy side. Like I'm a pretty good listener. I'm kind of a fix it person by nature. And, you know, when you meet with an employee, you can't turn into a therapy session all the time. Right. I've learned that lesson the hard way. <laughs> oh, uh, so I love connecting with people and my, my leadership superpower is the ability to ask questions that get people to open up to me. And I'm so deeply curious about what makes people tick that I've asked questions and made it too safe for people to tell me their deepest, darkest, you know, fears, insecurities, secrets. And then all of a sudden, you know this, right? And you're like, oh, okay, what am I going to go do with this piece of information? And you can see how it's playing out in the workplace. And so there's been often times that I have wished that I didn't know those things or that that an employee felt like we had some, you know, that there was some extra special connection there because, you know, they told me something that they've never told anybody else. And I realized how destructive that empathy was really for their psyche, for my psyche, for the business, uh, because some of them, those, those, those relationships, you know, had to, to end the, the, the employment had to end because of it. And uh, so I've had to really set boundaries for myself around, you know, how far and deep I will go with a person because it's not always an appropriate for me to know those things um, and, and be a really empathetic. Yeah. It, and it does take a long time. I mean, I, remember interviewing Nikki Leandakis, yeah. who's held a number of CEO roles. And she told me it took her 10 years to find that sort of balance point, right? Of how can you yeah. sort of compassionate? it? And, and a lot of the leaders I've interviewed describe it as kind of this middle distance, right? Like where you're friendly, but not friends, where you care about people and you show that you want the best for them, but 
you have to keep a little bit of that distance, not only protect yourself, but it is a business relationship, right? And at some point you might need to let them go for for the good of the company. I totally agree. I was just having a conversation with a girlfriend of mine. Uh, she and her husband run a business here in town and her husband became really good friends with one of their colleagues and it blew up. And she was like, I was, t- I was channeling Carrie saying, you cannot be friends with your employees. You can be friendly. You can be kind. You can be compassionate. You can be helpful, but you cannot be friends. I promise you it makes life so much more difficult. And you know, I think a lot of young leaders, I mean, I certainly made that mistake when I was you know, getting started at just 28. I wanted people to like me. And I thought, oh, well, mm-hmm. you're friends with them. <laughs> and it just it just does not pay off. There's there's got to be that that professional boundary that's there. Yeah. And I think and as an early manager, I think I made every mistake in the book and probably invented a few. But, you know, the, the first two were either, you know, if you want to be friends with them, it's like, hey, we're just friends. And the other extreme, yeah. you know, some people say like, I'm your boss, like I'm the boss now. So I'm going to act like a boss and walk around the clipboard and tell you what you're doing. Well, carrying on with this conversation in, uh, in one of the chapters, you talk about leading transformation or leading in a crisis and, and, and how, when things get tough, leaders really need to show up and be human. And a lot of leaders, you know, make tough decisions and then run away and hide because they don't want to have to face the, the fallout or the aftermath. So do you think that there is really starting to be a shift in leadership vulnerability? People are understanding how powerful it can be to be vulnerable, to to stand up in the face of adversity, to admit mistakes. Like, what are your thoughts on that? I, I would hope so. And maybe the optimist in me, but I, I think I, I think it starts with the way companies um operate in terms of how they incentivize and assess their leaders because for decades it was all about the what right it's just about you know the results you matter and nothing else they they may give sort of lip service to caring about leadership and management but at the end of the day people saw their performance and their you know ultimately their bonus just based on results and just results and I, I just think there is a, a growing wave of companies that are now saying like the how matters um, and uh, and not just saying that, but in effect, operationalizing it, that saying, you know, we are going to do um, deep assessments of you as a manager and survey your team about you as a manager uh, to find out how good you are. Because I do think this phenomenon clued into this during one of my interviews. CEO explained that a lot of people are usually good at managing one direction only. Like there's some people really good at managing up. And so their bosses think, wow, they're so responsive. They, these people are great. I guess they're great managers. Meanwhile, that person acts like a jackal to their staff or completely ignores them. And then, you know, in the other direction, some people are, you know, really good managers or try to be good managers and, and aren't so good at managing up. I, kind of put myself in that ladder camp and that I really cared about my people. And, you know, my, I think I inherited from my father, like he was congenitally incapable of sucking up to his bosses. And I think I have that too. Um, so, you know, just in terms of that direction, but, you know, back from the detour, like companies are saying, look, what your team thinks of you, like, are you developing, are you, do you, you know, do you show empathy? Those qualities we all talked about, we are, you know, we are going to find out if you're doing that or not. So you'd like to think that people want to do that. You'd like to think they're wiring it set to do that, but you have to put the infrastructure in a company to, to not just say this matters, but to sort of put some teeth behind. 
Yeah. Yeah. I know we've been doing that same thing uh, for years now because I didn't want to fall into that trap that because I had a good relationship with with my direct reports that somehow that meant that they were doing their jobs. And so we put in a, a manager assessment. We did it anonymously for the first several years. And then we've, you know, we're a radically candid uh, organization and we've created a culture of feedback. And so now it's all front and center. And, you know, I review all of it because I want to understand where people are are uh, excelling and where they need more support. And we have, because we take positive action with it, I think it, our employees have seen like, hey, it really is safe to give my manager feedback and, uh, and, and for you know, his or her boss to be able to see it because it has impacted real change rather than that, oh, I'm not going to say it because I'm going to get in trouble or no one's going to do anything about it. So yes. it yeah. works if it's done uh, effectively for sure. Yeah. And, and I, I also think that, I mean, there's just so many bad losses in the world, right? Like there's so many bad managers and I, I applaud any company that sends signals that being a good manager matters because sometimes you can manager, they're sort of like the basis in the band, right? They're sort of a little bit in the background, don't necessarily yes. get the attention or the spotlight, but I've talked to some companies that, you know, like being a good manager really matters and you've got to be in the top, you know, top quartile of employees in terms of ratings to even be considered for promotion. Yep. Yep. Right. And, and not just saying, Oh, like you're a four, or you're a five, but you know, at, at one company, they sort of give them labels. Like if you're a four, like you're a role model. And if you're a five, I think they call them exceptions, but just to create that sort of collective aspiration of being a good manager, because I think it's a huge responsibility that a lot of people don't take very seriously. And if you read Gallup's new latest report on why people are so burned out and leaving their jobs, the top five reasons all have to do with poor management, right? I'm, I'm not being treated fairly. I don't have reasonable um, expectations around my workload. My manager doesn't care about me, right? That's why people are leaving. Um, you know, they're not in alignment with what the culture is like, whether that's a team culture or a company culture. And uh, I think companies have to really pay attention. We have to rehumanize work, so to speak, because people are 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 looking for jobs uh, and leaving their jobs in record numbers. Yeah, and, and part of the context, um, I, I think that too. Like not only the great resignation, I think there's you know, people are really rethinking what's important to them in in life. But I also see that. It is sort of, there's this, to me, this grand arm wrestling going on between employers and employees about sort of who has more leverage, who's in charge. And, you know, it, I feel like when I was, when I was younger, it was more about like, what can I do for you as the employer? Right. And now I think a lot of people as employees are saying individually and collectively, what are you going to do for me? Um, and again, you know. Mm -hmm adds yet another challenge and responsibility on leaders to, to help address that question. I, I, I like that analogy of arm wrestling because it does really feel that way. And it's unfortunate it doesn't have to be that way, but I do think so many people have been taken advantage of, you know, whether it's whether this poor culture, poor working conditions, you know, poor pay, and even people who love their jobs can still say, I'm rethinking about the way I want to live my life. And the very best of employers are the ones who are having those conversations right now saying, great, how can I support that? It doesn't have to be either or, 
right? right? It can be, we can look at changing your role. So you don't have to lose good people. But I, I don't think that a lot of those cultures are safe for people to be able to have those conversations like, hey, my priorities have changed. What does this mean for my employment employment? Right, right. And I, I worry I'm becoming that sort of old guy. But, you know, at the core of it, for me, it always has to be this idea. They call it work for a reason. Right. And yeah. that I, I do think people need to sort of own their careers and own their responsibilities and yep. work. And to me, like when I think about all the people I've worked with over the years, like, that's the X, one of the X factors that's so important just for me. That's like, this is my job. I will figure out, I will own it. Um, as opposed to sort of pointing fingers quickly. Totally. Yeah, totally. And, and partner with people. We do mindful transitions at Stone Age where people can have honest conversations about, Hey, I want to try to go do something different. Um, whether it's a, a different role in the company or leaving the company, or when we're asking somebody to leave, you know, we can, we can do this all mindfully. Like it just can be this open dialogue. We're adults and yes, you're responsible for your own career and your own life. And we want to empower you to be responsible for your own life. We also right. know we have a role in, you know, your workplace well-being. And so how do we just have adult-like conversations about what's going on with no fear of, oh, somebody's going to give me a two-week notice uh, and leave me high and dry, or, oh, I'm going to get fired, and what am I going to do because I don't have any money saved to be able to handle this? And so there's just so much, I think, fear rather than dialogue around these types of conversations that are out there. Right. Well, and it just seems, I mean, I'll give you props because it sounds like you're very forward-thinking and to me, a lot of it comes back to this, you know, one of the sort of foundational points about life and leadership, which is just have the conversation, right? Yeah. You know, because so many problems happen just because people don't want to have the conversation for whatever reasons. Um, but even as a leader to sort of signal, like, we're going to have the conversation. And these are the kind yeah. of conversations that are totally fair game and open to have, and we have those here. So, you know, to me, that just sets a great tone. So yeah. again, props to you. No, oh, well, thanks. You know, we've been rehumanizing work for a long time. Being an employee-owned company, you know, we want people to act and think like owners. And if we want that, then we have to model what that looks like. And that means, you know, like treating each other like owners. And so it really fits our culture. And, you know, we wouldn't have become an employee-owned company if we didn't believe that that was what was going to be beneficial for the sustainability of our organization. That employee ownership mindset has made it easier for us to be able to have these hard conversations. That's true. Yeah. All right, let's switch directions a little bit. I want to talk about transformation because we are living in trans, I mean, all of this is right, transformative times and businesses have been forced to change overnight. So why do you think it's so important for businesses to be crystal clear on their reason for being as they're learning how to be more resilient organizations? I've been thinking about this a lot lately. So it's, um, it, it seems to be a timely conversation because everybody's talking about sort of purpose now, right? Like mission, vision, purpose. I, I saw this article recently that people are now hiring chief purpose officers. Um, and, you know, I, I often like to frame things um, just in terms of like, what's the bad movie version of something and what's the good movie version, you know, the bad movie version and, you know, that HBO series, Silicon Valley made hay of this, but there's this scene in one of the episodes where all these founders get up and they pitch their business, their arcane technology. And at the end of it, they all say the same thing, just to make the world a better place. Right. Um, and, uh, and I think some companies fall into that trap. Uh, 
talked to a CHRO recently at a great test where she said, you think about all your company's materials, like mission, vision, purpose, values, don't says, if you put your you know fingers over the name of the company, does it read like it could be a yoga studio? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in that pressure test, you see the cracks and the seams and, and you see the gaps between what companies say and what they do. And in this moment, people are calling that out. Maybe it's like the, you know, virtue signaling about diversity and yet the leadership team is still entirely white. Those, those kinds of things. And I, I do feel like people are wrestling with this idea about purpose more because I'm just hearing more and more companies, you know, writing some like real purpose-driven organization. Um, and I, I do think you need a little bit of a reality check on that because what I don't, I do think it's helpful for them to say, you know, some version to make the world of all the place, right? And so I think there's, there are more productive ways in that conversation. Some of the ones I've heard on that, you know, give full credit to others for these ideas, but just to ask the question, like, if your company didn't exist, sorry about the sirens, if your company didn't exist, like, what would the world miss because you were born? I think that leads to a more productive conversation. You know, something simply is like, why do you matter? And, and is any way to find a direction into that conversation that leads to something that feels specific and concrete and unique to your company, I think is a healthy conversation. And I I also think that's so important, just getting back to your initial question of like, what role does that play in conversations about transformation? So I think transformation is now a process. It's not an event for everybody. Um, And I think it's a huge leadership challenge because we are wired as human beings to not like cheat, right? We like a fair amount of certainty. And I, I think to get people literally and metaphorically to sort of unfold their arms across the chest and be open to that idea that one of the strategies that I've heard from leaders is to articulate up front, say, let's be very clear about what is going to change and what is not going to change. Yeah. And if you start with like, this is never going to change about our company. You know, the mission, vision, purpose, all those things that we can agree on are part of the unique DNA of the company, makes you special that you would never want to lose. Let's, so let's agree on all that. Now we can talk about like how we're going to deliver that. And I think that gets people more open to the conversation um, because so much of it is just sort of those sort of very explicit conversations to say, look, this is the status quo. These are the three charts I'm going to show you make it clear to us that like, there's an iceberg ahead of us, right? Like status quo is not an option. Let me use three more slides to paint a picture of like where we need to get to and industry dynamics and how we could win in that dynamic. And then let's agree on what's going to change and what's not going to change. I think those are some threshold points to make to start the transformation process rather than sending an all staff email saying, Hey, everybody, we're pivoting. Nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> that, that just uh, inspires panic. <laughs> Even though that's what companies do all the time. Now, yeah. I, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, and I think that's why I really appreciated those two chapters in the book, you know, going together with how to lead a transformation and the importance of a simple strategy. And it really helped me get really crystal clear. Like our purpose um, is, you know, to our, for our customers to be able to go home to their families safely every night. They're using incredibly dangerous products to clean 
everything that we use in the world. Uh, and so they're very, very important aspect of the overall economy, even though it's a very niche industry that nobody thinks about, right? Industrial cleaning. That's something that we can all get behind. It's not manufactured. It's not anything but what we do. We're making safer products so people go home to their families safely every night instead of getting killed by a water jet. And and then when you set the vision, okay, where we want to be, right? We want to be technology company that provides these really efficient, effective solutions that allow to do the work safer and and um, and better, you know, through the use of technology. Those two make it really clear whenever we make decisions to pivot why we're doing that, right? I bought an IoT uh, product development company. Everybody's like, why are you doing that? I'm like, because all of our products are going to be robotic someday. I'm just preparing for that right now. And that's the vision. And that's the purpose for being. And this is why we're making this decision. And then people are like, oh, yeah, okay, I see it. I get it. But if I didn't have that, people would have thought I was, you know, crazy. (laughs) Like, why are you doing this? So I think it's really important to have those, those things clear. Yeah. Yep. And and it is such a challenge for, for, for companies, for leaders, for it, and for often understandable reasons. I mean, in, I, I, in all my years as an editor in a newsroom, I, I saw this phenomenon with the reporters I worked with that I called expertitis. And I would have conversations with reporters after they filed the story. I'd say, you're suffering from expertitis. Like you are too close to this subject matter. And. Very often, I think leaders fall into trap if they've grown up in an industry, grown up in a company, that everything is so obvious for them. And sometimes they think that it's just as obvious for everybody else. And so it's hard for them to kind of step back and get to that right altitude to say the kind of thing that you just said, which is like, this is why we exist and this is where we're going and this is how we're going to get there. Um, and as simple as that yep. sounds, it's just very hard for people. I totally understand. And I love that you just said that because my goal in life is to never be an expert at anything. And I tell my team that, you know, we've been doing this for 42 years and we want to say we're the experts, but that puts us in a box that means that we aren't willing to try new things, that we're not willing to re-examine what we thought to be true that might not be true anymore. And so uh, I really love that. I hadn't heard it called uh, expertitis before, but I'm going to totally steal that from you because it stops curiosity. It stops learning. It's easier to say, yeah, we've already tried that. It didn't work. And, um, and really limits, I think, your ability to see where you can take the company. Yeah. And I also um, think it's a way of giving feedback that in also is kind of flattering because I would say to the reporters sometimes like you're suffering from expertitis. It is the most noble disease of great reporters, right? Like you've done such an amazing job becoming an expert on this, that you have fallen into this thing, but it's only because you are so damn smart about this subject. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, once you sort of say that, then it's like, okay, I get it. <laughs> Thank you for acknowledging my brilliance. <laughs> Now I'll listen. <laughs> That's really Wait, funny. Are you, are you saying you, you figured out my moves here? Come on. <laughs> oh, because I share them. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny. Yeah, I, I want to talk a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about that. I'm, I love yeah. that you worked for the New York Times for over a decade. What was it like working for the New York Times? And do you miss it? I mean, I, I was a journalist for 30 years and spent 18 mm-hmm. there. I'm, I'm a big believer in sort of chapters of life. Um, when I was in my 20s, I dreamed of getting the New York Times and, and managed to get there. Um, and, and it was thrilling. I mean, I have to say I had all the, the highs that, that one could have. Um, 
you know, a few of the lows along the way as well. When I was there, it was a very, you know, print centric publication, you know, everything was about page one. So I spent half my career as a reporter um, and half as an editor. Uh, and, you know, I think it was great training because I, I think, you know, we could talk about sort of the universal skills that matter, but just this idea of like critical thinking and simplifying complexity, which I think is a really important art of leadership. In many ways, I felt like that was a core part of my role as an editor is just this idea of like simplifying a complex idea, not only for the actual writing and editing of the story, but very often there were days the way the times was structured that they, back then they called them page one meetings in the morning and afternoon. And it was kind of like an arena, like a coliseum, right? Like 40 people, some of the smartest people I've ever met. Um, and people from different departments would take their turns pitching stories. And so the discipline, like I quickly figured out, I've got like 12 seconds, right? Like I've got 12 seconds <laughs> to nail this pitch. And so I just kind of developed this muscle over time about getting to the essence of the story and then communicating in a way that signals both it's, you know, why it's important, but also why it's interesting. So to me, it was just sort of great training of, of, you know, this whole idea is like, how do you laser into the essence of something? And sometimes when I talk to reporters, like the metaphor I would use is like, what is the gooey center of that candy? Like, just get to the heart of it. Um, and I would often also say to the reporters, like, what's the 10 word pitch on that idea? Cause I wanted them to share the discipline that I had because I needed the 10 word pitch to go tell, sell the story. Um, and so that just kind of became this relentless focus and, and managing teams of reporters was my day job, but my sort of entry into the kind of leadership field was back in 2009 as a side project, um, uh, sort of a lunch hour project, if you will, starting corner office, which was based on, uh, this, what if, which is what if I sat down with CEOs and never asked them a single question about their companies and instead just asked them about leadership lessons they've learned and all these kind of timeless universal challenges of leadership. And so did that for 10 years, 525 CEOs, never missed a Sunday. Uh, and that kind of set me up for the, the new chapter. And did you have any idea that that's where it would lead you when you started the corner office? Not, not at all. I mean, and, and I, I ran into, I'll share that there was maybe a little bit of skepticism because back then it's still true today that most CEOs are interviewed in almost as if like, you know, the person interviewing them is like a wall street analyst, right? Like tell me about this product and how does next quarter look and what your competitor is coming out with a flip phone and how you're going to, and, and, um, and so CEOs were always interviewed kind of as strategists, right? Um, and so I was cutting against the grain and basically saying, I want to do time less interviews, not timely, and I'm never going to ask them about their company. So there was a little bit of like, do you think you're going to get something from them? But I had interviewed enough CEOs doing, you know, for stories as a business reporter and things like that, that just the more time I spent with them, it's sort of like, you know, these people have got a lot of wisdom. They got really fast brains good senses of humor. I really want to set aside all these questions and just basically say, how did you do what you do? And how did you learn to do what you do? And, and I just, I will always remember the feeling after I did the very first interview of walking out of the, the office building, the CEO. And I just said to myself, this is going to work. Um, uh, and it just sort of sparked this, it, it's been a wonderful adventure and I continuing to do, I've got four interview series on LinkedIn and 
I learned so much from all the conversations and, um, feedback is great from readers of just getting in those sort of very practical sweet spot of like life wisdom, leadership wisdom, but also some of the tactical tools, like just how do you approach this thing? Like help me, give me something that I can go into a meeting on Monday with and do with my team. And so I'm always on the lookout for those as well. So, uh, it, it, it's been a fun and surprising adventure. I love that story. That is such a fantastic pivot in your life. <laughs> Getting to combine two things, the one thing you knew you loved and something that you didn't even know yet and what it was yeah. going to turn into. That's awesome. I <laughs> love yeah. it. The, the other what if that I said for myself when I started Corner Office was, um, I said, I'm, I'm going, I set myself a guideline. I'm just going to interview um, a lot, uh, it's going to be a really diverse set of CEOs, like in every sense of the word, race, gender, you know, nationality, industry, for-profit, not-for-profit people outside business altogether. Um, and I also said, I'm never, I'm going to interview everybody the same way. I'm never going to ask any gender or race specific questions because mm -hmm. I certainly back then for me, I got so tired of seeing these interviews where somebody was interviewing a female CEO and saying. So what's it like to be a female CEO? And I just think like, I like, let us count the 53 ways in which that's a stupid question. Right. Um, and what's it like to be a black CEO, which is offensive on 53 different levels. And so I just said, like, I'm going to interview, I'm going to get rid of the adjectives in front of the word leader. I'm going to interview everybody in the same way. And, and if they want to go in those directions, I'm happy to follow them, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to go there. Um, and I got good feedback over the years. You know, a lot of people would say, thank you for not asking me all the usual silly questions. Um, and what's been interesting that after George Floyd and like, we've started this series called leading the B-suite on LinkedIn, I've got a partner, Ron Morris, the CHRO at Chevron, and she and I became fast friends and I, it, well, after I interviewed her in 2019 and, um, you know, she spent most of her career in meetings as a double only, the only female, the only person of color in the meeting and, and as we became friends and we started saying there's just something we could do to keep this conversation going about race. And part of what I said to her, it's like, this has always been important to me to not have those conversations, but she was pretty convincing saying people want to have the conversation, right? It yeah. is front and center and we need to keep the conversation going. So that's, yeah. uh, so I'm on a new learning curve there too. So I think like you, I'm, I'm happiest when I'm on a steep learning curve. I love that. I love that. So how did this lead to the Exco group? Tell us that transition and, and what you do. Sure. So I thought I was never going to leave the New York times. I mean, I, it's, I've still got a bit of New York times ink in my blood, I think. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess a couple of things happened. A few things happened. So one is I, I turned 55 and I said, how did I become 55? Like, and did that happen? Um, and I started thinking like, if I want to have another chapter in my career, I better get after it sooner or later. That also coincided with me passing the 500 interview milestone with corner office. And I've learned a lot and always loved my day jobs at the New York times, managing teams or reporters on different desks, but I had had pretty much every job I wanted there and had all the highs that one could hope for. And so. I just got to a point, it's like this side project with Corner House and at that point I'd written a couple of books and started teaching leadership and doing some speaking around it. Then I just said like, I want to turn the, the side passion project into my day job. And fortunately 
uh, among the 525 CEOs I interviewed, I met a guy named David Weiner, who ran a firm called Merrick. Uh, and he and I just became friends. I mean, we had a really good conversation. We just stayed in touch. If he was in town, we'd have a coffee or a drink or a meal. We never ran out of things to talk about and seemed to have a lot of shared values. And so when I started thinking about like, what do I want to do next? In some ways it was an easy conversation because he and I knew each other. We trusted each other. Our core business at the Exco group is leadership development, executive mentoring, which is right in the sweet spot of what I want to do. So, um, I feel, I feel very fortunate and it's probably also one of the benefits of like, if you interview 525 people, you might find your future boss in that set. So. <laughs> Oh, I love that. And so tell us about your, your clients. I mean, are, do you work exclusively with CEOs or do you work with executive teams? Like how does, how does it work? Yeah, all of the above. I mean, our, our core business is at the C-suite level. So CEOs, anybody in the C-suite, mm-hmm. people who are, you know, that companies are investing on to get to the C-suite. We also do a lot of work with cohorts. Um, and we also do a lot of work with leadership teams, just making sure that they're operating like a true team. Um, and, uh, but, but the main, the, the core part of our business is that one-on-one mentor. We've got about 40 mentors here in the U S. Um, and one of the fun parts of my job is that, um, as we've been growing and needing more mentors, I've brought in a lo- number of people from my network, uh, to be, to be our mentors. Cause you know, this is going to surprise you, but just because somebody's been a CEO doesn't mean they would necessarily be a, a good mentor, right? You have to be. There has to be that listening and selflessness and check your ego at the door and all that. So. What? You can't just tell people what they need to do to go fix their problems? So much Weird. easier. Right? <laughs> and so working, interviewing all of these CEOs, you know, the 500 plus interviews and, and now, you know, in your consulting practice, if you had one piece of advice for leaders who are looking to be exceptional, what would it be? I just keep going back to the same two things, which I think are the pillars is like, you know, that strategy component, like it is yeah. probably not as clear as you think it is, right? And just to, to sure. hit that sweet spot of simplifying complexity, not oversimplifying, um, and and to be kind of relentless about testing it, because I think a lot of those things are are sort of developed in a in a vacuum or you know by the leadership team. I've seen so many strategy slides; they all look the same. There's sort of seven bullet points on the right, and then there's a tiered colored pyramid on the left with corkscrew arrows and all sorts of labels and all that stuff that describes their world. And it's like, okay, that makes perfect sense, I guess, but I can guarantee you that nobody remembers this. Um, and so to just having that discipline, that critical thinking, that permission to be for everybody on the leadership team, to be devil's advocate to say, this is not clear enough and then going and testing. Um, so that's the first part. And I just keep coming back to this core skill of listening as a leader, as a human being. I think it's just becoming increasingly a rare skill. Um, it is the underrated superpower of leaders. And I think we can all work better at that, you know, especially the higher up you go as a leader, the more in all information is compromised when it comes to you. So you've got to create that infrastructure to make sure that you're getting a true signal. Yeah, I totally agree. And a really good trick for not talking and just listening is just hold your tongue in the bottom of your mouth. It's really hard to talk if your tongue is in the bottom of your mouth. And so that's my trick. When I want to say something, just, uh, uh, I can't talk. One of my favorite acronyms that I heard from somebody you probably heard is the acronym is WAIT, which stands for why am I talking? 
um, yeah. which is it's the perfect acronym because it tells you to wait, but also explain. Uh, I love it too. All right. Final question before I ask you where we can find you. The name of this podcast is Reflect Forward, which has many, many meanings and, and special ones to me. What does Reflect Forward mean to you? The question that's underlying that for me is like, how do you want to be better two years from now than you are today based on, you know, reflection, right? Just like you think about what you're good at, what we need to work on, how you want to be better. So that's what it means to me. Love it. Love it. All right. So how can people find you? Uh, my website is adambryantbooks.com. And you can also, uh, our, our firm's website is xcoleadership.com. Wonderful. And you're very prevalent on LinkedIn. So people can yes. also find you on LinkedIn. Yeah. So please yeah. connect with me. And uh, we've got four interview series that you subscribe to. I think we've got about 180,000 subscribers for the different series. So uh, please join in. There's just great insights week after week, not from me, but from the people I interview. I love them. I read them every week. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Adam. This has just been an inspiring and educational conversation. Uh, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Certainly did. Thanks so much, Carrie. All right. Hang tight and I'll be right back. All right, everyone. I'm back. I hope you enjoyed that podcast interview. I just can't wait for my next conversation with Adam. So, so inspiring. So inspiring. All right. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Reflect Forward. If you wouldn't mind, please write a review on your favorite podcast platform, rate it, share it, comment, anything. Uh, the more engagement that I get, the better. I love feedback. And it also helps me move up on the podcast list with the ever increasing volume of podcasts that are out there. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Thank you.